This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Hi, everybody. This is Joan Newberger, your host for this episode of 15-Minute History. And today our guest is Lisa Kirschenbaum, who is a professor of history at Westchester University, and she is the author of a number of books on 20th century Russia. And today we're going to talk about the Spanish Civil War. Welcome to 15-Minute History, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Maybe you could start just by telling us, giving us a little overview of the Spanish Civil War. The Spanish Civil War is a pretty complicated situation, but uh, in a sense, it became an important international cause because it seemed very simple. It started actually out of all kinds of internal domestic Spanish political problems, beginning with a military coup in July of 1936, overthrowing the duly elected popular front government of the republic. Uh, very quickly, however, it became an international struggle that seemed to pit communism or really democracy against fascism because the so-called nationalist side, the rebels, the insurgents, the people who had led the military coup, very quickly got assistance from Hitler and Mussolini. And so we're very clearly tied in the international imagination to fascism. The Soviet Union was the only country that actually offered aid to the republic, but did so kind of quietly because they didn't want to too closely associate the republic with communism. They were trying to win allies against this fascist insurgency in Spain. But the Soviets were the only country that provided some aid. And they also, through the Communist International, the Comintern, helped to organize an international brigade, about 35,000 people over the course of the war, who came from more than 50 countries to aid the republic. And for them, the cause was simple. This was fighting fascism. And a lot of, say, German exiles came because that's where you could fight fascism with a gun in your hand. Mm -hmm. So communism is associated in, in this war with democracy and a duly elected republic. Is that one of the reasons why so many people were drawn to the cause? I think that's right, that it's, it's the era of the popular front, meaning that the communists are trying to kind of put revolution on the back burner and unite the entire left against fascism. Of course, not everybody believes that they're actually sincere in this, and there's still a great deal of controversy over what was Stalin really trying to do. And of course, we can't believe that Stalin was sort of legitimately and sincerely fighting uh, for democracy. But a lot of the people who went and fought in Spain did see the communists as the only forces that were in an organized, disciplined way trying to fight fascism in Spain. So who were the young people who came from 50 different countries to, <laughs> to fight? Um... They weren't all that young, all of them. Some of them were World War I veterans. I think, I don't know the average age, but actually a lot of them were a little bit older in their 20s and 30s and even older than that. The, the sort of myth of the Spanish Civil War was that it was the Poets' War and all these people like uh, George Orwell came to fight. But actually a lot of the people who come are very working class. Uh, a lot of Welsh coal miners come, uh, they're merchant seamen, they're, they're often very working class people who come, 
usually in the Communist Party, about 75% of the Americans, of whom there are about 3,000 who go and fight in Spain, uh, are members of the Communist Party or the Communist Youth Organization. So they come out of uh, often labor activist politics in the United States. Some of them have been long-term members of the Communist Party. Those are the some of the people that I trace more. I'm interested in how their idea of what it means to be a communist gets them to Spain and how maybe that changes a little bit once they're in Spain. And what did it mean to be a communist? <laughs> because so, I'm sure it isn't just any one thing, but right, right. what did they I believe mean, in? I, a lot of it, I think, is belonging to a kind of international community for them. And that's why Spain becomes such a powerful experience, because they're literally surrounded by people speaking, you know, 30 or more different languages, singing the international everywhere. And they think this is really what it means to be part of an international cause and really making a difference for it. Some, of course, are very sectarian. There's a lot of infighting on the left. The big enemy for communists in some ways is not the nationalists or the fascists, but the Trotskyites, who they see as in league with the fascists. So there's a lot of this sort of Stalinist factional fighting that gets pulled into it. And that's a piece, too, of Stalinist identity. It's a very us-against-them kind of notion. And so a lot of these young people, or young and middle-aged people, (laughs) went and trained in a school set up in the Soviet Union, right? Some of them, actually even long before the Spanish Civil War started, some of the communists went to the Soviet Union, to places like the Lenin School, to become better sort of communist cadres. So I trace some who were in the Soviet Union in the early 30s, Uh, 32, 33, and then some who are actually Americans studying at the Lenin School in 36 when the war breaks out, and they, along with students who are there from Czechoslovakia and other places, some of them go directly from Moscow to Madrid to join the international sort of campaign in Spain. So those are the people who kind of have a long-term tie to the Communist Party, who have been part of it even when it was putting revolution sort of on the front burner. Now, in 1935, revolution is kind of off the table a little bit because we've got this bigger problem of fascism, but they remain communists and they kind of reinvigorate, in a sense, their communist identity through participating in this armed struggle in Spain. Were they mostly men? They're mostly, most of the fighters are men. Uh, The Spanish Republic initially fights the rebels through these kind of hastily organized militias. And those militias, in fact, enlisted women who fought at the front. And the kind of militia woman in blue overalls becomes a kind of emblem of the war in Spain and actually shows up a lot in the Soviet press, too, this sort of emancipated woman holding a gun. But by the time the republic organizes a regular army, surprise, surprise, women are banned from combat. So so the men are, are largely the ones who are fighting. There's a large number of women that go as uh, medical personnel. And one of the people that I follow who's really interesting, who spent the 1930s in the Soviet Union working at the Moscow News, which was an English-language newspaper for foreign workers in Moscow, leaves Moscow in end of 1936 and works for the kind of Republican press office in Spain. Her name is Millie Bennett. She's one of the very interesting uh, women who goes, but I haven't followed any women combatants. There, there were some early on. This was also a period of terror at home. 
So this was the height of, when we think of the worst crimes of Stalinism, this is the period we're talking about, when intellectuals and others were rounded up and exiled and killed. It was a period of enormous uncertainty and disillusionment in Soviet communism. How did that end up playing into the recruiting of people to go fight. Yeah, this is exactly, in a way, why I got interested in the Spanish Civil War, because it's this moment of the worst of Stalinism, of the terror, combined with this moment that's sometimes considered sort of the only thing Stalin did right, was to try and help the Spanish Republic. So for some people, I think it functions as a kind of literal or figurative escape from that kind of disillusionment. So, for example, a lot of political exiles in the Soviet Union, there's a large number of Austrians, for example, who are there, they kind of read the writing on the wall that foreigners are not very welcome in the Soviet Union anymore, situations looking very dangerous, they volunteer to go to Spain. Uh, and this is true of other people who are kind of getting the sense that it's politically dangerous for them, foreigners in the Soviet Union who decide it's time to make a quick exit and they can go to Spain and not publicly say that they're being disloyal to the Soviet Union, but it's a way to escape. For Soviet people, it also is a kind of escape because it's this moment of real kind of revolutionary idealism that's kind of a counter to the purges. But in some ways, what's going on in Spain becomes a sort of justification or even explanation in a sense of the purges. It's the same enemy. The same Trotskyites who are supposedly trying to kill Stalin are the same Trotskyites who are undermining the Republican struggle uh, in Spain. And so it almost, in a sense, validates this idea of a global Trotskyite conspiracy. So is that support for Stalinism played out in the journalism, in the press, back in the Soviet Union? Yeah, yeah. It's it's very, very much part of the story of the war in the Soviet Union. And the war gets a good bit of coverage in the Soviet Union. It's partly pushed off of the front pages by the show trials, but even so, it gets a, a fair amount of coverage. And a lot of that coverage is about the sort of evil Trotskyites trying to overthrow the regime. You see this a lot in Mikhail Kaltsov's coverage. Uh, so more evil war. Trotskyites than heroic young communists? Or are there also portraits of all the heroic young there's, communists? There's there? lots of portraits of heroic Spaniards. Uh, I told you the, the female militia uh, members are very prominently featured. And Dolores Ibarri Pasionaria, the head of the Communist Party, is very recognizable. Her picture shows up all the time uh, in the Soviet press, so much so that when she finally goes into exile in the Soviet Union, she gets sort of fan mail from Soviet people saying, oh, you know, we're so glad that you're here in the Soviet Union, and we're so distraught by what happened in the Republic. So she becomes a kind of well-known figure. And, and what happened press. to her? What was her life like in Moscow after the war? <laughs> it's, it's really, she stays there a long time. She's in either in the Soviet Union or in Eastern Europe until 1975, 76, after Franco dies. So she's in exile a long time. She tells a really funny anecdote in her memoir, which was written in the 1980s, how when she got to Moscow, she gets there in August of 1939 or something like that, just before the Nazi-Soviet pact. And she tells this story about how she's trying to learn Russian, and she realizes that political words are more or less the same in all languages, so she can kind of work her way through Pravda. And then she says in the memoir, of course, what I thought they were saying was sometimes the opposite of what the newspaper was really <laughs> saying. You think, well, yes, of course, because suddenly there's this alliance with the Nazis. So 
that moment of the Nazi-Soviet pact, not one that she talks very much about. Um, the pact that Stalin signed, signed with by some time right, at right, the beginning of the war. Which yeah. just kind of ends this notion of Soviet anti-fascism because now they're allied with the fascists. But once the German invasion happens in the summer of 1941, then she actually becomes a kind of prominent figure again, uh, kind of making some of the same kinds of speeches that she was famous for in Spain. And her son, Ruben, actually serves in the Red Army and is killed outside of Stalingrad. So she becomes this figure of kind of Spanish-Soviet friendship and kinship and shared anti-fascism. Do you know the post-Spanish Civil War story of some of these people who fought in the international brigades? Yeah, it was one of the things that I was really interested in is kind of how or whether they maintained some of these international networks afterward, which was, of course, tough to do in the Cold War because both sides were very much opposed to any kind of cross Iron Curtain kind of connection. So a lot of the Americans, people like Steve Nelson, who had studied in the Soviet Union in the early 1930s, was a commissar in Spain, became kind of a muckety-muck in the Communist Party in the United States, was accused of helping uh, the Soviets learn about America's nuclear secrets in Berkeley. Um, he and others are eventually charged under the Smith Act, which criminalized essentially pro-communist speech. You didn't have to do anything pro-communist. You just had to speak in favor of the Communist Party. Um, so he is charged under the Smith Act and the Pennsylvania State Sedition Act. And those people who fought in Spain are often targeted in that kind of McCarthyism of the early 1950s. On the other side of the Iron Curtain, a lot of international volunteers from places like what becomes East Germany and Czechoslovakia, they're initially sort of celebrated as these anti-fascists, but then a lot of those sort of Stalinist show trials in the early 50s there also target the Spaniards as people who have these suspicious international ties. Maybe they're working for American intelligence. Maybe they're working for Tito. We don't know. They're very dangerous. And so a lot of them become targets of these xenophobic purges in the 1950s. It's not a happy story. <laughs> well, thank you for coming in to tell us this story, because it's really fascinating. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.